the monster is none other than Red Herring. Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo, the podcast where we delve into the mystery of Scooby-Doo media, getting clues from people who helped bring our favorite mystery-solving dog to life on various platforms, and maybe eating some Scooby snacks along the way. I'm your host, Alexa Lawler. Scooby-Doo, where are you? And it would have been mine if it hadn't been to those meddling kids. Gang, we've just been handed our next mystery. Blasted meddling kids. start off this episode with a special mention to Joe Ruby. Joe was one of the co-creators of Scooby-Doo, and he sadly passed away on Wednesday, August 26th at the age of 87. We wouldn't have Scooby-Doo without him, and to steal from Scooby-Doo's or Scooby-Don'ts, which is also a great Scooby podcast if you haven't listened to them yet, but I think they put it best in their tweet, quote, he might be gone, but his creations are immortal. Rest in peace, Joe and condolences to family, friends, and all who knew him. For the interview this episode, we have Laren Bright, who worked as a writer and story editor on a pup named Scooby-Doo. Let's just get right into it. so much for being on the show today. I'm glad to be here. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. If you're up for it, I'd like to start off with a quick three-question trivia game. Okay, do I get points if I win and lose points if I don't don't have the right answers? I haven't really been playing for points, but if you'd like to. <laughs> no, that's fine. Let's see what you got. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, so question one, true or false, A Pup Named Scooby-Doo aired its first episode in September 1988. Oh, wow. That's a great question. I would say that's true. That is true. Good thing. And question two, uh-huh. in A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, after Velma said Jinkies, one of the other members of the gang would say, uh, Velma said Jinkies. Can you complete the rest of that line? No, I can't. You, you, you complete it. It's, it must be a clue. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> there you go. It's, it's been a while. Definitely. Question three is multiple choice. Which three of the following are all villains from A Pup Named Scooby-Doo? Oh, boy. A, the headless skateboarder, Chickenstein, and Stinkweed. Or B... Uh, just a general scarecrow, the Black Knight, and the Cheese Monster. Oh, A. That is right. Yes, it is A. Good. I remember Chicken's thing. <laughs> and to start off the general questions, what's your relationship to Scooby-Doo? Did you watch it all? No, I, I, I mean, you know, I'd seen the odd episode. I, I wasn't particularly a fan, but... You, you want you want the kind of the history of how how we ended up with the show? Sure. Great. Well, here's here's what was going on. Hanna Barbera at that time, uh, and that's the late '80s, um, had 
I think, the largest um, stable of writers of any studio around. And there, there were, th I think, 34 writers at that time, and I was number 33. And they, they, they had a kind of a, uh, a situation where the writers could, could jump in on certain shows. And what happened was uh, a guy named Tom Ruger, who did the first season of Pup Scooby, as I recall, um, went, I think he went to uh, Warner Brothers Animation. So they had an opening. And one of the, guy, the guy that actually brought me into to work at uh, Hanna-Barbera, fellow named Lane Riker, uh, he was a very strategic thinker. And he saw that as an opportunity. So he, he jumped in and grabbed um, the opportunity to, to story edit Pop Scooby. And so uh, we came in, I, I'm pretty sure it was the second season. And uh, that's, how, that's how we kind of got moving on, on that show. And we did it for a couple few years, as I recall. And how, just generally, how did you come to work in animation? Oh, that's a funny story in a way. I mean, I was, I was old for animation at that point. I was like 42. And, but Lane Riker, who I just mentioned, uh, I knew his mom and he was, he was doing cartoons. Uh, I mean, hand-drawn cartoons, uh, static cartoons. And uh, I saw a few of them and I sent him a, I, I sent him a fan letter. I said, this is great. He was, I think, 22, maybe at that time, 23. And uh, we struck a friendship and we, one night we had gone out, my wife and, and I and, and Lane and his wife went, went out, we had gone out to dinner, actually to see his mom in a dinner theater thing or something. And he said, you know, you're funny, you ought to be writing scripts. And I said, you know, I don't know anything about writing scripts. And he said, well, okay, just keep it in mind. So anyway, about, I don't know, maybe two weeks later, he gives me a call and he said, hey, uh, we're doing a pitch meeting for um, a show named Snorks. You want to come? So I said, sure. So I went down to Hanna-Barbera and uh, sat in a room with, I don't know, 20 people. And I, I felt like I was very intimidated because I didn't know anything about what was going on. And um, I went home. He said, okay, you know, go home and write some premises. And I said, what are premises? He said, well, they're kind of story ideas. And I said, okay, fine. So I went home. And, and dashed off some premises and and uh, took them in and he looked over my list. I probably had eight or ten of them and he said, oh, okay, I like this one. And he says, okay, go home and write an outline for this. And I said, what's an outline? And he said, well, uh, here. And he gave me a stack of outlines and I went home and read a few of them and, and wrote up an outline and took it back to his office. And he said, yeah, that's good. He says, okay, I turned it into a script. And I said, what's a script? And uh, he said, he gave me another pile of, of papers that were scripts. And uh, I went home and turned my outline into what I thought looked pretty much like a script. And I took it back to his, there was a, several days passed, and I went back to his office and he said, hang on. He said, don't leave. Let me, let me take a look at this. I'll be able to tell right away whether he's got it or not. And he looked at it and he kind of shook his head. And he said, let's go to lunch. So we went to lunch. And over lunch, he said, he told me what I needed to do to turn what I had done into an actual script. And uh, so I, I did that. 
and took it back. He said, yeah, this is a script. He says, don't now do the same thing with this story idea. And uh, so I, I turned in a couple of stories and, uh, uh, and, and turned them into scripts. And um, he said, uh, and it made more money than I had ever made before because it was, I think it was like 1700 bucks or something like that for a script. And uh, one day he said, uh, I'm going to see if I can get you hired over here. And like I said, they had a million writers on staff, but he went to, he went to the, to the um, business affairs guy. And he said, uh, I want you, I'd like you to hire this guy, Laren Bright. And he said, well, we don't really need any more writers. And he said, Hey, he'll work for cheap. And it was like, I think, I think I started like 700 bucks a week. This is 1980, whatever, 87 it was. And, uh, and, uh, and the guy said, uh, work that cheap Blaine said yeah and to me it was like tons of money because I, I was doing freelance writing up at that point and it was you know it was sporadic and uh, so I got hired on to Hanna-Barbera on, on a pretty much week-to-week uh, -week basis and after I don't know six eight months I got they hired me full-time and uh, I, I was able to join the union at that point and and I wrote animation from then on till for seven years. So that's how I got in. And was writing cartoons something that you had ever thought that you might do? Never, ever. I, it was just, my life, my life has been kind of sort of like that. I mean, where I don't have any particular plan, but things present and then they last for as long. I, I worked in animation for seven years almost almost to the day in a way uh and and i found that that my life goes in two year or seven year cycles if you want to get a little woo, woo about things and uh, so no i hadn't thought about animation i loved comic books when i was a kid and uh and i liked cartoons uh but i surely didn't know anything about it and it took me a long time before i felt really um confident of what I was doing, even though I was, you know, my, I would turn in scripts and there would be minimal editing and, and, uh, and it was really fun to watch them turn into actual cartoons. Um, but, it, but it was not, unlike, uh, there were three of us working on Scooby, Pup Scooby together, Lane Reichert, myself, and a guy named Bill Matheny, who, who recently passed away. Uh, he, he was a young guy too. Anyway, um, Bill knew everything about animation. I and mean, he, he was a walking encyclopedia. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, but <laughs> I just kind of got sucked in there and said, wow, this is an interesting ride. Let's go. What was the atmosphere like working at Hanna-Barbera? Hanna-Barbera was a fabulous place to work. It was really wonderful. The, the, Bill Hanna, Joe Barbera were still there when I got there. Now they had sold the company to, to, a, to some large conglomerate company, but, but apparently they were allowed to run it. And they, they were awesome. And because of the way they, they treated writers, particularly Mr. Barbera was very protective of the writers. And we would go in on, uh, we would get a contract year to year contract when you sign a contract for a year. When your contract was up, they they make you an offer and they offer you a hundred buck raise or two hundred buck raise and you say that's ridiculous and you say I want a thousand buck raise and 
and uh, you'd end up somewhere with three, four hundred bucks more. And it, it, it was, but the, but the atmosphere at Hanna Barbera was very collegial. I mean, um, the, the writers were in a particular wing of, of the building uh, uh, on Cohen Boulevard, and and um, you know, if you got stuck on a story, you walk down the hall and pop your head into somebody's office and say, "Hey, I'm stuck. You know, can we talk about this?" And they say, "Sure." You know, it was really great, and and I left Hanna Barbera in I think ninety or ninety one to work on Batman the animated series over at Warner Brothers Animation, which was a whole different story. It was very corporate and a lot of political games, and it, it wasn't fun for me. Other people probably thrive on it, but I sure didn't. And then I went. I ended up going back to Hanna Barbera uh, to work on Captain Planet, and when I came back. People I barely knew were coming into my office saying, welcome back, you know, and, and, and there were sometimes folks there had their children and grandchildren working there. That was the kind of atmosphere that, uh, that Hannah and Barbera had set up. And, and it was just, it was a joy to go to work at Hannah Barbera. It really was. It was just super. And do you have any fun stories or memories from working there? <laughs> well, let's see. Now let's see if I can think of any clean ones. The, well, let me think. The, you know, fun stories. The, the, the one thing I remember was in, in the artist's wing, the artists had their own wing. It was like actually in a, in a separate building. You had to walk a ways to get there. And uh, being artists, they all had uh, all kinds of uh, different stuff, uh, different art hanging up on the wall. And um, when when the company that owned Hanna Barbera, when I was there, sold to another company, uh, when when another company came in, they were they were a lot more stiff-necked about things. And um, they they went into the artist wing and made them take down all their drawings, which were if if you if you ever look at comic book drawings, um, especially girls, um, you can imagine what was uh, <laughs> what was the content. I'm trying to think of it. you know it, just I can't think of any really funny stories in Hanna Barbera. I can I'll tell you I'll give you another sense of atmosphere though. Um, animation animation writers we pretty much knew each other, it, it, whether you worked at Hanna Barbera or Warner Brothers or or uh, Disney uh, or Geek, and which were the major studios at that time, and. Um, there was a woman at Hanna-Barbera named Barbara Simon who was in charge of the writers. She kind of was the mom for all the writers, and she was just awesome. And if you know, if we were going to go out for lunch, we'd just say, Barbara, we're going out for lunch. We'll be back later, and you know, whenever later was. And um, I remember going out with the guy. We we uh, have a lunch. We meet up with some of the guys from Disney, and, and we'd be sitting eating lunch. And they'd be watching the clock, and I'll tell you, they had one hour for lunch, and that's what they got. And if they didn't finish their lunch, uh, 
they were still out of there and going back to the office. Um, so that was one of the really cool things about, about working at HP. Um, you know, one of the, in the process of producing the shows, we would get, um, we would get the animation, you know, it takes, back in those days, it took forever for animating. So we would write the script and then, I don't know, I don't remember how long it was, but it was like months. And then we would get a chance to look at the thing. And the first thing you look at had no sound effects and no music. And it was just really interesting to look at it and, and to see it. And then to see, to see when, it, when they fleshed it out. And it was, it was really quite a process. And, it was, and the other thing in Hanna-Barbera that was really cool was when, when, we, uh, when they would record the episodes, we would go down, the writers, they would invite us in to the, um, to the recording sessions. So we could, uh, you know, we could, we could comment, we could, we could give notes to the, to the voice artists, uh, you know, saying, no, no, you know, this needs more emphasis on this part or what's underneath all of this is this, so you can convey that. And it, it was, I mean, we were really part of the whole process and it was really exciting in a lot of ways. And, and we got to meet a lot of cool people too. And what was it like to be able to be present at those recording sessions and, you know, see your words come to life? It was, it was very cool. It, it was, uh, most of the, most of the voice artists, maybe all of them, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I can think of any of this that don't fit this, were really, really neat people and very, very open, you know, to hearing what we had to say. And, and, and we were res respectful. I mean, we, we weren't making changes a lot, but they would, they would read, read through the script. Uh, they would record the script. And then we would give them notes and they would go back and make changes where we would suggest uh, changes. And, uh, it was just fun. It was, I mean, all of it was fun, but it was fun to be able to do that, to sit and watch. I, I, I remember when, when I, we were doing Fender Bender 500, there were about three, four, five, six, seven, eight, about 16 characters. And some of the voice actors at that time uh, did two or three voices maybe, but the, the room would, the, uh, the recording room, uh, studio would be filled with people. And I remember that the voice director at the time, Gordon Hunt, made a comment to one of the other old time guys that, that, that was there looking in the room, seeing, you know, 10 people sitting in the room. And he said, you know, uh, 10 years ago, there'd be one person in that room doing all those voices. That was Mel Blank. We did the voice of Bugs Bunny and, and people like that. But he, but he did, apparently, for Hanna-Barbera, he did all those voices when he was alive. After he died, they had to, each character had its own, had its own voice actor. So that's a, a kind of an interesting little tidbit. What was it like to write for a pup named Scooby-Doo specifically, with it being, you know, such a different incarnation of Scooby? Uh, Tom... Tom Ruger, the guy that, that story edited the first uh, season, had pretty much set a, uh, 
we stayed pretty much true to that. And the way it worked when we were writing Puck Scooby was that Lane and Bill and I would sit down and we'd break stories. In other words, we would, we would come up with some ideas. They really were into, and, and I very much agree, but I was brand new at this point. So um, they, they were always looking for wacky stuff. And, uh, you know, I didn't know how far we could push the envelope, but they, they were pretty comfortable pushing the envelope fairly far. And, and um, so anyway, we would, we would break these stories and, and kind of flesh them out. And then one of us would go write it or, or they'd bring in a, a, a freelance writer and we would sit, uh, there were different styles of story editing and, 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 the, and the, the style we used was is we would break the story with the, with the writer and spend maybe two, three hours going through so that when they came back and then what the way the process was, was we, we'd come up with a story idea and then uh, we would uh, send the writer out to do it. And then um, they would come back with an outline. We would read the, much like I had done with Lane when I first started. Um, we'd read the outline, make any kind of corrections, and then um, then they would go back and write the script. The advantage of doing it, other guys would just say, hey, here's a premise, you know, go, go come back with an outline or a script. And then they, then they would spend hours and hours and hours fixing it to fit the vision that they had. By, by investing the time in advance, um, we were able to, uh, uh, when, when the outline came in, there was very little uh, that was off track from what we had in our vision uh, of what we wanted the story to be. And, and we could make the changes on the outline. So when the script came back, it was, it was pretty much exactly what we wanted. And, uh, uh, it just, for me, doing it that way, it, we put, in, in a sense, we put the hard work in at the beginning, and then uh, we could coast with the rest of it because we were getting what we wanted. And what was the timeline of how long you would have to work on the story for an episode? You know, that's a really, really good question. I think... Uh, I mean, it's a good question because to give you a, a, a kind of an insight into uh, into how how the cartoon industry was going at that time. I think I think if, if my memory serves, we had about a week to go from story idea to finished script, and on on very rare occasions we would. Uh, be able to put a script down for a week and then come back to it. And it was just like, what a luxury, because when you come back, you come back with new eyes, you know, and you can, you can really plus the script and, 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 you know, plus some of the, uh, the little gags and things like that. Um, but, it, but in general, we didn't have that luxury. And, and at one time I was working on a show. Uh, it was a short show, it was a five minute show, uh, uh, Fender Bender 500 that that took all of the Hanna-Barbera uh, key characters, you know, all the major characters and put them all together in 
in a race and we had to have a different race every week. And I worked on that show with another story editor named uh, Christina Lucky. And I think we had to turn out, it started out for the first few weeks, we had to turn out three scripts a week. And then after that, it was like four scripts a week. And so, you know, we used to call it sausage factory. You know, you're just grinding out scripts, grinding out scripts, grinding out scripts. And how long would it take you roughly to write one of those scripts? Well, like I said, we had a week, so we could do it. Uh, I mean, one, I remember <laughs> uh, back in the day, let's see, I guess uh, Ronald Reagan was president and his wife was into the just say no um, to drugs uh, campaign. And I guess Mr. Barbera and Mr. Hanna were at some, some event I, I don't know, some big political event. And apparently Mrs. Reagan said something like, would you really like to have a cartoon about, about uh, just say no. And um, so this, one of, one of the, the guys, the, the studio guy said, gee, well, we own a cartoon studio, we'll do that. And I think we wrote, we wrote a, a just say no special. Uh, and we wrote it almost over the weekend. It was something like that. So, you know, that's how fast we could get it. You know, now keep in mind also, some scripts were, were 20 minute scripts, which were half hour scripts, and some scripts were 15 minute scripts. They're actually like an 11 and a half or 12 minutes. So, you know, depending on the length of the script, that depended, that, that had a big, big impact on the, uh, the length of the, and generally, would you be working on one show at a time, or would you kind of go between the various different shows that Hannah Barbera would be working on at one at one time? That's another really good question. No, when we when we we would be working on one show at a time until we completed that, and then we go on to the next show. Um, there was a, there was a that was one of the cool things about being a writer at Hannah Barbera because we had a year contract we would go from show to show, but then there was a period where they weren't producing shows. Each year there was, a, there was a, once you finished the season, there was a lull. And that was the, the time when uh, writers could um, come up with their own ideas or develop new shows, or, or people would come with show ideas and we would work up development, uh, a Bible and, and uh, maybe a script or two or a bunch of story ideas at any rate and and pitch them to the network so that's i know that that's how networks came up with with what shows they uh, they were going to use for the next season we'd go out and pitch to them and then um you know then the networks would decide the one thing about pop scooby was there the, the head of of um, animation uh programming at abc was a woman named Jenny Trias, and she loved Scooby, a pup Scooby. So it was, it was always great working with her because, you know, she liked the show and she liked it. And so consequently, she liked us. And so it was kind of neat. And what was it like to work on like a childhood version of those iconic characters in the Scooby-Doo gang? Well, you know, interestingly, uh, I, I worked also um, Flintstone Kids, which was 
a similar process. You know, taking taking iconic characters and and aging them down uh, to kids, and it was it was a lot of fun. In a lot of ways, I think I prefer Pup Scooby to to the actual Scooby Doo. And then there was there was also uh, Scrappy or somebody. There was another, they came up with another character that had a, a, a kind of a short life, um, and that was also part of that evolution. Um, but it, but it was I mean it was neat working at Hanna Barbera with like you said iconic characters that um, that you you know we knew the characters but we didn't know them as kids and so we had a chance to really develop them you know they're the same they're the same characters but they're different and it was kind of fun and did you have a favorite character to write for in that style hmm i think we probably liked shaggy a lot um they were all kind of cool characters i mean uh Velma was kind of cool too. Maybe I would say uh, of them all, I, I mean, aside from, from Scooby, uh, Velma and, and Shaggy were probably my favorite. And uh, the childhood version of classic characters was a pretty big trend at the time. Why do you think that that formula worked so well? Well, boy, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it worked well, for one thing, because uh, the characters were known and the characters were liked to start with, the, the adult characters, the adult version of the characters. And with Scooby particularly, you know, I mean, it, it, it was pretty formulaic, but it was a fun formula, you know, and, 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 um, with Scooby particularly, we could just get ridiculous, um, you know, with the with the monsters and and the villains and all that stuff. But I think I think that we had we had momentum with the adult characters, and we were able to 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 be fun enough, take aging the kids down, um, so that younger kids would like it, and I going to suspect that that maybe some adult uh, you know parents of the kids uh, kind of got off on watching the characters do the things they, they did as, as young kids so that'd be my guess were there any challenges for writing for Scooby at all no more challenges than just writing an animation period I mean the challenge you know was was the schedule and always um, I mean, it wasn't horrible, but, it, but it was, but it was, you know, we, we, we keep working. I mean, you, you had to kind of keep working to get the scripts out, uh, at the right, on the, on the timing that the studio needed it. And, um, you know, that's probably the biggest challenge, uh, because the environment at Hanna-Barbera was, was so, um, word that comes to mind is positive. It was just a really positive work environment. Um, and and su such an easy, easy going place and an easy place to work with. That minimized, I think, 
a, a lot of the challenges that that, that exist in, in in the writing business. I mean, it, it's funny. Live action writers look down on animation writers, uh, but but the way I always looked at it was, you know, with with children's cartoons, we're really shaping the future in a lot of ways because what we portray in our cartoons is what is what kids start to look for in reality and start to create in reality. Um, I mean, I, I for Lane, Lane had a company um, that he was doing uh, some publishing and, and uh, uh, he asked me to, because I had been working in advertising prior to that, and he asked me to come up with a slogan and I, or, or, or a, I don't know what you call it, but anyway, it was like a statement of, of, of our philosophy. And, and what it came up with was, what we inspire the children to believe is what the world will become. And I always felt like that was a responsibility that I had when I, when we were writing was, was to present positive images. We always, in fact, now this is 87, 88, 89, thereabouts, you know, we always made it a point. I, I think that in, in uh, Flintstone Kids, the mayor was a black woman. Um, we always were very respectful of women in the cartoons and of minorities. We always tried to include uh, minorities in a positive light and stuff like that. And that was just, uh, to me, an opportunity to, to make a contribution other than just writing entertainment. And, and so that's why I laugh when, 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 when uh, sitcom writers, uh, uh, you know, would, would kind of sneer at us or look down their noses at us. It's like, hey, you know, we're, we're planting seeds for the future here. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? And you mentioned being inclusive, but what are some of the other positive messages that you would try to get through in the cartoons that you were writing? Well, uh, probably a really good example. The, the last uh, three years of my career in animation, I worked on a show called Captain Planet. And um, the tagline for Captain Planet was the power is yours. And it was an environmental show, and Captain Planet was the world's first environmental superhero. And uh, he, the message that we always put in, I mean, in every episode was, hey, look, here's what's going on, and here, here are things that you can do, you kids can do. And we always tried to, in that show, but, but in pretty much everything we did, we always tried to present positive imagery for children. And... Uh, and I mean, that was why when I went to work at um, at Batman, I found that a real challenge because they didn't care about that stuff. They 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 wanted uh, sort of dark and uh, angst ridden. I mean, that's who Batman was at that time, uh, and you know the Dark Knight kind of imagery, and and it's like no, that's I, that's not what I that's not the legacy I want to leave. Um, so, uh, you know, so I guess at the time they were calling it pro-social content, you know, where, where you show positive stuff about the environment, positive stuff about gender, that kind of thing. And so that was something that, that, uh, personally, I always tried to, um, include and, and most of the people that I worked with similarly tried to do that. 
And why was it important to you to be able to put those messages in the programming that you were working on? Well, because I was aware that our primary responsibility was to entertain, but telling any story does more than entertain. It's, it sets up ideas, it sets up mindsets, it sets up, uh, you know, ways of thinking. Um, and, and like I said, I mean, it sets up belief in, in the way the world is. And uh, so my own ethical philosophical system just required that, that I present a positive, a po always a positive message. Um, that's, I mean, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, in the writing that I do now, which is mostly public, you know, uh, books, I, I'm, I'm always looking to have a positive message in there. Yeah, you want to have, you know, action and adventure and you have to have tension and conflict. I mean, that's part of the story. Um, but, but at the same time, it can be done in a positive way or, or a less positive way. And I, I, my preference is a positive way. And have you paid much attention to animation these days? Do you think that uh, programs today still have that aspect? You know, that's a, that's a, interesting. I, I really uh, have not paid a lot of attention to um, animation uh, when I left when I left that that industry. Um, partly uh, because the nature of the whole industry changed. I mean, Saturday mornings cartoons. I mean, almost disappeared i mean we when i was i was fortunate enough to be there pretty much in the heyday of of, of children's animation i mean and that dominated saturday morning and that that all changed pretty much i've watched a little animation um and now on you know on uh, on things like netflix and, and amazon prime and places like that um there are uh you know, a, a more adult animation than kids' animation. I, I don't know what children's animation is doing these days, really. Uh, I, I think there's always an underlying intention to be positive in children's animation. And that kind of shifted as, you know, when they started writing animation for older, older kids, I think they you know, they went off in a, in a kind of different, I mean, I think Batman the animated series is a good example of that. It, was, it just got darker and, 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 and less fun. It wasn't, when I read Batman comic books when I was a kid, it was fun. And when I watched the um, Batman the animated series stories, they were exciting and they were adventurous but I would not put the word fun in that description. And can you elaborate on why you decided to leave the animation industry? I didn't decide to leave the animation. Animation decided to leave me. It was the strangest thing. I had a, I had a, a fairly impressive resume with high profile shows, including, um, you know, Batman. That was, I mean, that was a, very prestigious show to have worked on. And I worked on the first year of that. Um, one of the things that happened was that uh, I, my, the last three years of my animation career was working with Captain Planet 
for whatever reason, Captain Planet was not looked upon as a prestigious show. Now it's, it's interesting because at one time it was the, had the largest global viewership of any uh, animated show ever. Um, we had huge presence overseas, but it was not a show that it was almost a dead end kind of a show. For me, it was a dead end kind of a show. I worked, I worked with a woman named Sean Derrick. Uh, we were the story editors and, and, and we worked together on, on all the shows uh, when we started working on Captain Planet. And uh, she went on and, uh, and did very well. Uh, for me, it was just weird. I, I couldn't, I, you know, not to get too woo-woo on you, but actually what I think happened is my, my karma finished with the, with um, animation because with all the, all the shows, I mean, I've got three Emmy nominations. It's, I mean, it's not like I was, you know, uh, uh, some hack writer. I, you know, I, I had recognition, I had good shows and I could not get a job. It was the weirdest thing for about a year and a half. You know, I, I was trying and trying and, and uh, nothing was showing up. And finally I realized, wait a minute, uh, I'm, I'm not an animation writer, I'm a writer and I do animation, but I have other areas that I can work in as well. And uh, so I just turned to those instead of beating my head against the wall trying to get jobs in animation. But, you know, and, and I mean, you know, in ultimately, at, at the end of the day, looking back, it was like, well, that was kind of lucky that I had uh, a broader range than just writing animation because the animation business changed entirely. And uh, I think it was, you know, a lot of the guys that were that were working in it, I think had to move on. I think, I mean, I don't know that for sure, but that's what I think. And where did you go after your stint in animation? Well, uh, there were two or three years when I that were very very lean years for me, and it was just strange. And like you say, then one literally one day I literally woke up saying, "Wait a minute, I can do other stuff." So I started doing um, I started doing uh, what I had done prior to animation, which was writing uh, advertising stuff, and I found that that writing animation really enhanced my advertising writing, and then. I ended up hooked up with a woman who, this was in right around the late 90s, and self-publishing was just coming into uh, popularity. But, but self-published books look like crap. Uh, and I hooked up with this woman who, she called herself a book shepherd, and she would shepherd people through the process of producing a book that when when it came off the press, you looked at that book and you could not tell the books that she helped people produce from a book pr produced by Doubleday or one of the big publishers. And uh, she and I were working together and she would have their, her clients hire me to write all the promotional stuff, which would include the book title, the subtitle, the back cover and, and what has become, it used to be the flaps now, call it, you know, the Amazon description. And that's the stuff that really sells the book. So that's what, and, and occasionally she would have me edit uh, um, if the book needed editing. So I would, I would edit. 
So that's my career took a turn in that direction. And then I've, I've co-written a couple of books with young adult uh, fantasy kind of stuff. And uh, so I, I had a kind of a broad spectrum career writing animation, promotional stuff and, uh, and publishing stuff, you know, stuff that was published books, things like that. And are you still working at that today? I am. I'm currently working on a book. It's pretty an amazing book. It's, uh, it's about transcendent leadership talking. And this is for like, you know, corporate CEOs. I mean, big heavy duty folks. And it's about loving leadership. I mean, believe it or not, it's, it's coming around to make corporations, to help corporations be more human place, humane places to work. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. Although I have a, I have in my head a, uh, a, a very young children's book, uh, a children's picture book that, that uh, when I finish this editing part thing, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in and write it. I'm, I'm kind of excited about it. Awesome. Yeah. And moving back to Scooby, uh, what was your favorite thing about working on a pup named Scooby-Doo? Oh man, there, there were so many things that I really liked about doing that. I, I liked, I loved the process of working with, with Lane and Bill. Uh, I mean, here's these two young guys and I'm in my mid forties and, and, and I'm the young, I'm, I'm the, the least experienced, but they were really kind uh, and, and they were fun to work with. And, and uh, so there was that. I loved working just in the environment at Hanna-Barbera. Um, and I, and also it was fun working with, um, uh, with uh, the, the folks from ABC because they're, you know, the, the process of, of writing scripts would be you write, you know, you write the outline, you send it to the network. The network would come back with notes. So you address the notes and then, and write the script. And then you send it to the network and the network would come back. Both the network and the studio executive would come back. And so you're dealing, here you got writers who have written scores, if not hundreds of scripts, dealing with executives who've taken a weekend class on script, on, on writing and are telling us what to do. And uh, sometimes it could get, unpleasant. I, I mean, when I say unpleasant, I should, I should, well, like it was not, sometimes it was not fun. With Scooby, that was never the case. That We were all on the same page. We were happy to make changes that, that the network wanted because, or the executives wanted, because we were all looking at the same thing and, and, and their, their comments and, and notes were, were generally, uh, you know, on target. They, and I mean, sometimes we say, eh, I don't know that makes us any better, but, you know, we'll accommodate that. You know, sometimes, you know, on other shows, you come, you know, the executive come back and says, uh, make this funnier. So, well, what does that mean? You know, what, what we think this is funny. If you don't, you got to tell us <laughs> what it is that will make it funnier, because we think this is pretty funny. So working on, on Pop Scooby, it was just, it was just fun. It was a party all the time. And I don't mean we didn't work hard, but, but it was, the atmosphere was always up and, and fun and funny. So that's what I liked about it. 
Do you have a favorite episode that you wrote at all? Oh, man. There was one, and I don't remember the name of it, but it featured Davy the Letterman. And uh, it was a game show thing. God, I don't even remember the whole thing, but it was something It was something like that. I, I like that show a lot. And a pup name, Scooby-Doo, uh, had a lot of more wackier ghosts and monsters. Do you have one out of the whole show that sticks out in your mind now? The one that I remember was the one in your trivia question was Chickenstein, and I couldn't even tell you what the story was about, but I just remembered the monster, and I thought it was a funny monster. <laughs> oh, the, the, I think the headless skateboard guy was pretty good, too. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. Um, and out of your time at Hanna-Barbera, do you have a favorite show that you worked on at all? I really liked Captain Planet, uh, despite the fact that, like you say, other, it was not highly regarded. I, I, I just felt like that was the one that was making, I mean, it's nice to have your work uh, acknowledged as actually making a contribution in addition to uh to just entertaining and captain planet that was its whole franchise was was to educate in an entertaining way i mean i guess it was called edutainment um but but the message to me uh of captain planet about environmental stuff you know how to be responsible it it wasn't like progress is bad or or capitalism is bad it's that uh, that greed is, is where the problem was coming in uh, to, to create problems. And I still think that's a good message. And I think it's a particularly good message for today. Uh, so I really like working on, I mean, and, and just for a little history, uh, uh, Captain Planet was, was the brainchild of Ted Turner. Uh, Ted Turner ultimately owned Hanna-Barbera Oh, he actually he owned Hanna Barbera at one time. Uh, later, but it started out at a at a different studio called Deep, and um, and then when they brought it when when Ted Turner bought Hanna Barbera, they brought they they bought the, the program back from Deep and brought it to Hanna Barbera, and that's when I ended up. That was at the end of my year at uh, at Batman, and so. Uh, I ended up getting hired back in Hanna-Barbera to work on that show. And uh, anyway, that's the story of that. And when it comes to Scooby-Doo, why do you think that a cartoon about a mystery-solving dog has held up for over 50 years now? Boy, that's scary, isn't it? Over 50 years, wow. Uh, You know, it's just, I think it's just a really good premise with some really good characters that people enjoy. They, they, you know, little quirks, you know, jinkies and stuff like that just works. And, and apparently it works from generation to generation. I mean, and so, uh, you know, what, what, if, if anybody could really distill it down and say, oh, this is what makes shows become classics, uh, they could make a fortune, but I don't think anybody knows. I think they just hit on it with, with Scooby and, yeah. I mean, because Scooby has outlasted some of the, the really more high profile ones. I mean, the Flintstones, stuff like that. Uh, Scooby 
persists. I don't know. Maybe it's just a great idea. I think that covers all of the questions that I had for you. Is there anything else that you wanted to add at all, whether it be some more stories or anything like that? Gee whiz. Uh, I just, no, you know, I guess I would just, I'd like to say that I really felt like it was a privilege and an honor to work in animation. Uh, at the, when I did it, I, I learned, I learned tons um, doing that. And I, uh, you know, I, as I've kind of been saying all along, I can't say enough about working in Hanna-Barbera and the people there and the whole philosophy of that company, which obviously has disappeared now, has been absorbed into other big corporate things. But, uh, but it was really an experience uh, that I'm grateful for in my life uh, of having had the, uh, the opportunity to do that. And just before we end here, do you have any recent projects you'd like to promote at all? Oh, thank you so much. Actually, I really kind of don't. I have. I. I can tell you, I. I recently uh, finished a book called. I. I, I co-wrote um, with a woman named Grace Allison a book called Einstein's Compass that I'm particularly proud of. I. I really. Uh, I like the the message of the book, and I and I like the way that. Uh, that we handled it. Uh, it was really kind of her story, and, and I contributed uh, to make it um, um, more exciting, I guess I would say. Uh, and, uh, and I worked on uh, another book called Golden Voyages, Young Children's Book, that I was uh, pretty happy with also. So those, those two, I would say, uh, are probably the two I really appreciate having the opportunity to mention Alexa. And if people are interested, is there a way for people to get in contact with you or follow what you're up to? Sure. Uh, the, probably the easiest way is just to go uh, to my website, which is larenbright.com, uh, and get a sense of, uh, of what I'm doing and <laughs> where I'm at. and. You know, I'm, I'm available on email there at larenbright.com if anybody, uh, you know, anybody wants to chat about stuff, I'm around. Perfect. Well, I think that covers everything. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Laren. Alexa, I really appreciate it. And that concludes today's episode. Another huge thank you to Laren Bright for taking the time to chat with me. For more groovy content, be sure to check at UnmaskedSD on Twitter, at UnmaskedSDPodcast on Instagram, or at UnmaskedSDPodcast.com. You can also find the podcast on Facebook under the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo podcast. If you like this episode and want to hear more, also make sure to check those social media channels or the website. Or you can listen to older episodes wherever you like to get your podcast fix. Thanks for listening, and keep an ear out for the next episode. Scooby-Dooby-Doo!